Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we're in the middle uh, of our teaching series that we're calling the hard sayings of Jesus. The hard sayings of Jesus, where we're taking a good look at all the things that Jesus said, actually not all the things, but many of the things that Jesus said, which are kind of hard to understand, maybe difficult to digest. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that contains uh, what I think is everyone's favorite Bible verse, right? Like especially for those that don't believe in Christ, especially for those that aren't Christians. You might be thinking like, man, why would somebody who's not a Christian, why would somebody who doesn't know Jesus or love him or desire to follow him, why would a non-Christian have a favorite Bible verse? And I think it's because this verse speaks to the very spirit of our age. And so here's the verse, Matthew 7 verse 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. You heard that verse thrown around? Right? Where people say like, hey, who are you to judge? Right? I mean, I think it's like one of the most common tattoos that you'll see is only God can judge me. Right? Um, Which is ironic. But it's a, it's a motto, this idea, like, only God can judge me. Like, you can't judge me. That's a motto in our culture. And it's a culture that, that loves independence. It's a culture that loves personal autonomy. Our culture has these two running assumptions when it comes to this particular topic. The first assumption is that uh, your religious beliefs are a private affair. Right? It's just a private affair, just for you. And the second assumption is that morality is relative. So, hey, you choose what's true and good for you. I choose what's true and good for me. uh, And let's just let each other be. And so when people try to cast judgment on our actions, or maybe they try and talk down on our our team, the, the group that we associate with, like, we, we, we like to throw this verse out, like, hey, don't judge. Only God can judge us, you know? Only God can judge me. It's the same thing that we do when we want to defend um, our favorite, like, celebrity or our favorite politician who has maybe some qualms with their moral character. We'll say, hey, judge not lest you be judged. And then we act like anyone who disagrees with that statement, with that declaration to not judge, We just label them as this intolerant bigot. We cancel them. Bill Maher, the TV host, says this a lot when he rails on Christians, when people of faith. He'll say things like, man, who are they to say what's right and wrong? Doesn't Jesus say judge not? People treat it like the mic drop of all mic drops. But as Inigo Montoya the character of Princess Bride would probably say, I do not think that verse means what you think it means. 
So let's go ahead and work our way through the text. All right, point number one, not all judgment is bad. All right, not all forms of judgment is bad. Now, how do we know that? We mentioned this last week, that if you want to interpret Scripture correctly, you need to, you need to consider the context of the verses you're looking at. It's like understanding a conversation. If you only catch a line or two in the middle of a conversation, you could misunderstand the whole of what was being said. And in the same way, if you look at a single line of Scripture without checking the context, you might find yourself missing the point of the whole conversation or the whole passage of Scripture. And look, that's what happens when we make Matthew 7, verse 1, the poster verse for tolerance without considering its context. If you look at the context and the whole of Matthew 7, belongs to a long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is trying to make this clear distinction between true religion and false religion, a true relationship with God and a fake one, real spirituality and what he calls hypocrisy. And so when Jesus talks about judging here in verse 1, He's not saying that you can never tell someone that they're wrong. That's what he's been doing throughout the whole sermon. As a matter of fact, in verse 6 of our passage, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Man, that's an intense verse, right? Like, did Jesus just call some people dogs and pigs? We're going to get more into that verse later, but for now, I want you to consider how if you're, if you're, not, going to, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to uh, you know, uh, give dogs what is holy and throw your pearls before pigs, if you're not going to do those things, you've got to find out who the dogs and the pigs are so that you won't give them those things. Moreover, just a few verses later, Jesus makes this statement in Matthew 7, verse 13, 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter, he's speaking about the kingdom, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now does that sound like, hey, whatever you want to do to get into heaven, just do it, right? Like, whatever you want to get into heaven is fine. Like, like, who am I to judge you? What about the next verse? Verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So if all you do is look superficially on the outside, you'll see like a sheep's veneer, and you won't see the wolf underneath. You need discernment to know what's really there. You need to judge, you need to test, you need to evaluate between what's true and what's false. Or what about later in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22? Jesus tells a group of people, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So he straight up tells them, hey, look, you guys think you're right, but you are wrong. He calls them out. And this isn't just Jesus who does this. Like, like all his followers did this too. John the Baptist, who's considered, you know, like other than Jesus, like they, they say that there's, there's no one more righteous than him than John the Baptist. 
he was killed for calling out uh, one of what, what, for calling out uh, a Herod on uh, one of his uh, affairs. The apostles, we see Paul in Galatians, Corinthians, I mean, his entire epistles, these letters to these churches, is him correcting them, telling them how they need to reform more closely to the scriptures. And so if this command in Matthew 7, <coughs> this command to do not judge, can't mean that we can never tell people they're wrong, then what does it mean? What does it mean? According to Ephesians 4, someone who doesn't know the difference between what's good and evil, between what pleases the Lord and what breaks his heart, that person, it says in Ephesians 4, is like a child. We're given this image of spiritual immaturity. It says that that this child becomes prey to Satan's crafty ways because they're not able to discern, because they're not able to judge. And so, if that's not what do not judge means, then what does it mean? You see, not all judgment is bad, but all judgmentalism is bad. Not all judgment is bad, but all judgmentalism is bad. All right? And so this leads to our second point. Judgmentalism is bad. All judgmentalism is bad. Now, what do we mean by judgmentalism? What do we mean by judgmentalism? Judgmentalism is the type of overly critical, unloving, others condemning, condemning, self-promoting egotism that Jesus saw, especially when he spoke to the Pharisees. Judgmentalism is a type of overly critical, unloving, others condemning, and self-promoting egotism that Jesus saw in the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, they weren't calling people, calling out people because of their sin. They were actually criticizing people because of the class they belonged to, the social class they belonged to, because they had rough personalities, because of the way that they looked, the way that they dressed, or simply because the Pharisees saw the world as like us versus them. The Pharisees saw themselves as the model, the pinnacle for how things should be, and everyone else is wrong. You see, here I, I want to talk now about just a few marks, a few marks of judgmentalism that we see here in the scriptures. Judgmentalism sees the world through that lens of us versus them. Us versus them. Look at verse 2 of our passage. It says, for the judgment you pronounce, this is Jesus speaking, he says, the judgment you pronounce, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. See, what Jesus is confronting what he's coming up against, what he's confronting here is the type of judging where you see yourself as better than others. Where you're setting yourself up as worthy and everyone else is unworthy. It's where you say we are the righteous ones and the others over there, they're the unrighteous ones. See, the Christian can't do that because if the Christian does that, we fail to recognize that the righteousness we have is not even our own. It's not a self-righteousness. It's a Christ-righteousness. And so Jesus is saying to them, he's saying to his listeners, to these Pharisees in the crowd, he's saying, look, by proudly boasting in what you know about God's rules and imposing that on others, by, 
by, by proudly boasting what you know about God's righteousness and his rules. You're placing yourself in the seat of judgment. And by virtue, you're saying that you've lived up to the, all those standards yourself. And if you have it, you'll be judged for that. You see, these Pharisees, they had a wrong view of other people. They thought they were exempt, and everyone else was going to get it. But Jesus says, no, there's no double standard here. There's no double standard with the gospel. It's not, it's not one for you, one standard for you, and another for them. You're going to be judged on the same basis as everyone else. You see, there's a difference between contending for truth and criticizing a person made in the image of God. There's a difference between contending for truth and criticizing a person who's made in the image of God. You see, when we criticize for critiquing sake, we play God. We assume we're exempt from what other people are not exempt from. And that's having a wrong view of other people. That's having a wrong view of other people. You see, others are not under us. Non-Christians are not under us. They're beside us. We're all beggars of grace. We're all in need of God's grace. The view you should have is not us versus them, but us for them. God has saved us unto himself. And as he prayed to the Father, as Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he's like, I called them out to the world and I send them back into the world to reach those whom you have called by my name. See, judgmental nihilism sees the world through this lens of us versus them. And Jesus says, no, my people can't have that. You can't have that. The other thing judgmentalism does is judgmentalism ignores ignores your own personal sinfulness. Judgmentalism ignores your own sinfulness. <laughs> Read verse 3 through 5 with me. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I love seeing Jesus' sense of humor here, right? He's got jokes. He's got jokes. It's memorable. It's funny. He's making this, this strong point. And you just picture it, right? You got this one guy with this, like, tiny little splinter in his eye. And the other one's got, like, this two-by-four just, like, lodged into his eye socket. You know what it feels like to have something in your eye, right? Like to where you have this, this, this thing just in, in your eye and it's like irritating you and you're trying to flush it with water or have someone like blow in your ear, but a mat, or your ear, your eye. <laughs> your eye. Right? Like that's, that's, that's irritating. But imagine having this beam of wood just lodged in there. Like that's comical. That's the image that Jesus is painting for them. And his point is twofold. He says, look, how could you even see the splinter without noticing the massive beam in your own eye? 
Moreover, why does the one guy with the two-by-four lodge in his eye socket think, think that he could even pluck the speck in his neighbor's eye without taking care of the thing in his own eye? See, what, what Jesus is getting at here is, I mean, on one hand, he's getting at hypocrisy, right? Like the married man who lectures singles to keep their dating relationships pure, but he's looking at porn on his own computer. Or the woman who hates how judgmental her neighbor down the street is, but then gossips about her to everyone else. Jesus is exposing hypocrisy in this little example, this mini parable. But it's also about more than hypocrisy. Jesus isn't just trying to get his listeners to avoid hypocrisy. He's trying to get them to engage in repentance. To deal with their own sinfulness. It's not just, hey, don't be a hypocrite. He's also encouraging them like, hey, you got to deal with your own stuff. Deal with your own sin. Notice in verse 4, he says, when. Right? He says, he says, when there is a log in your eye, not if. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me help you with that speck when you have a log in your own eye? See, basic Christian theology teaches us that we are born sinful. We're sinful by choice, but also by nature. We are totally depraved. In Matthew 15, he says, it's not what we do that defiles us, but it's what's deep inside of us, our sin nature, that defiles us. You can try to cover that nature up. You can try to, to whisk it away. You can try to cover it up, but it's still there. It's still there. You know why they want to get you to get it like a COVID test before you jump on a plane? Like They'll, they'll, they'll ask you like all these tests about your symptoms, but they still want you to get this test done before you go on a plane. And that's because you might not show symptoms, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the disease. You might not be showing the symptoms that you see in someone else, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the disease yourself. What judgmentalism does is it assumes that the bigger problem is always out there. And never in here. I love this resolution from the Puritan John Owen. He says, the choicest believers, in other words, like the most mature Christians, the choicest believers who are assuredly free from the consuming power of sin, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. He's like, look, even the most mature believers who know that they are free from sin's power, even them, they, you got to make it a habit. You got to make it your business every single day. Make it a part of your daily liturgy to slay your sin, the indwelling power of sin. Now, what does that mean practically? It means like when I'm, when I want to address someone else who is in sin, I should be aware that the same sinful nature dwells in me. Now, because I'm a Christian, I know that that sin nature doesn't have power over me. If 
by virtue of the, the, the victory I have in Christ's resurrection and my union with him. And so that sin doesn't have power over me, but I'm also not beyond my need for God's help. I'm also not beyond my need for God's empowering grace in fighting sin. You see, judgmentalism, judgmentalism ignores your own sinful nature. It assumes that other people have that sinful nature more than you do. And Jesus says, like, no, you can't have any of that if you're going to follow me. We also see that judgmentalism confronts sin out of pride. Judgmentalism confronts sin out of pride and not out of love. You see, if the, if the posture of your heart is one of judgmentalism, then you're going to become more angry, more enraged, more upset by someone else's sin than you will be embarrassed by your own. You'll look at others as being without dignity, and you'll treat them as such. Look at how Paul addresses the church in Galatia in Galatians 6. He knows that people in church, sometimes they, they slide back. Sometimes a prodigal leaves the home. Sometimes we, we fall into sin. And Paul says when this happens, he tells the Galatian church, he says, brothers, if anyone... If anyone's caught in any transgression, which is another word for sin, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, in other words, those of you who are Christians, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice he says, you who are spiritual, you who belong to Jesus Restore that person. That means pursue him. Confront his sin. Call it out, but do it in love. It's this leave no man behind mentality that you see in a true band of brothers. And you do it in a spirit of gentleness. He says restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And when Jesus says keep watch on yourself, that's Paul's way, or sorry, when Paul says keep watch on yourself, that's his way of saying, look, be painfully aware of your own sin, of your own temptations, right? Don't treat others like you're better than them. Don't confront others out of pride, but do it out of love because you want them to swim in the same grace that you are. Judgmentalism also refuses to correct sin. Now, this one's kind of ironic. Judgmentalism refuses to correct sin because it writes another off as hopeless. Now, here's the irony with this one. When you won't pursue a brother or sister's holiness, when you won't tell them that God's word says something is wrong, or you think things like, they'll never change. They'll never get it. That's almost a way of saying, hey, this person, they're beyond hope. All's lost with them. They're beyond hope. I'm not even going to try. Or when you say, you know, engage, getting into that hard conversation with them, it, it's not worth the awkwardness. 
right? It's not worth the awkwardness to confront them on this thing. That's a way of saying, no, they're not worth the awkwardness of a hard conversation. See, when Jesus said, do not judge, he wasn't telling us to never evaluate someone's relationship with Christ. He wasn't telling us that we should never evaluate a brother or sister's relationship with the church. He wasn't saying that you should never evaluate someone's that you love, their relationship with sin. What he was saying is he was telling us to evaluate these things with a posture of humility and with, the, with acts of carefulness in a way that doesn't dis- dismiss either that person's dignity or your own personal sin. You see, that's what Paul was contending for in Ephesians 4 when he said, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so he's speaking here, Paul's speaking there to the church and its leaders. And he says, look, when you speak the truth, speak it in love. And the reason that you do that, the reason you speak the truth and the reason that you do it with love so that we all grow to look more like Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. That's what it means to speak the truth in love. I love love the way that Tim Keller unpacks this in his book on marriage. Tim and Kathy Keller, their book on marriage, rather. They say, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. And the conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. You see, truth without love is just judgmentalism. But love without truth is just mere sentimentalism. When you bring those two together, truth and love, that's where the gospel lives. That's where grace is found. Look, I know that we have plenty of bad examples of how we've done this as Christians. And this is why a lot of people, maybe many in this room, have a hard time receiving truth from brothers and sisters in Christ who genuinely love them. Because all they know from their own personal experience, all they know from what they've observed, is that people like to sling truth around just to condemn others and and, and hurt them, to belittle them, to treat them as without dignity. The reason that sometimes Christians fall into that error is not because they've got too much gospel, but because they have too little gospel. 
It's not because they care too much about God's truth, but because they're clinging to a perverted side of God's truth. Rather than speaking truth in love, rather than calling someone out while still maintaining their dignity as a person made in the image of God. Being able to see someone else's sin while first mourning over and repenting of your own. That's what he's getting at. For us to not, to, for us to actually go deeper into the gospel. So then what do we do? Like what, what posture should we have? If, if it's not judgmentalism, then what is it we should do to make sure that others are convicted of God's truth, convicted of God's sin? That leads us to our third and final point. You just trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit to convict a conscience. Now, when I say trust the Holy Spirit, I don't mean like, hey, trust the Spirit and like don't do anything, right? But I'm saying, look, you pursue truth and you pursue love, but then leave the results up to the God who is sovereign over all things, right? Trust the Holy Spirit to convict a conscience because, because if you don't trust the Holy Spirit, then you might go into this error where you're like going coming back again and again and again until they get it. Get it, get it, right? Or you're going to try harder and harder and harder until they get it. And then eventually you're just berating the person down. And also if you're not trusting the Holy Spirit to convict a conscience, you might find yourself on this other side to where, you know, you're like, man, I'm not seeing any results and so I'm just going to give up. Right? All hope is lost. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. Here's that weird kind of verse. He says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Wild verse. What is going on here? We know it can't mean, we know that this verse can't mean that we should refuse to engage with people that don't agree with us. Right? Which is how some people see this. Some people We'll look at this verse, ignoring its context, and say, like, all right, if people, if people aren't going to agree with me, then, then I'm just not even going to engage with them. That's how some people see this. But that would miss the whole point of Jesus saying that we should never dismiss a person. Let's kind of pull it together to get more understanding. When Jesus refers to dogs here. Now, it's important for you to know that dogs were not cute back then, Right? There were no golden doodles in the first century. There was no dog perfume, no leather collars. They weren't, there weren't any lap dogs. Dogs in the first century cities, they were mongrels and scavengers. They were nasty beasts. They ate garbage. They were pests. And, uh, you know, people just didn't like them around. And they would always end up in the temple around the time uh, of, of, of Passover um, because that's when a lot of people were there and a lot of scraps would be on the ground. Kind of like, like whenever there's like 
a festival or a party or like at theme parks, right? Wherever people are, you see like the birds are there, right? The pests are there because food falls on the ground. In the Old Testament, it actually says that you should never throw a holy thing to a dog. And what was considered a holy thing? You see, when back in, in the, in, under the Old Covenant, when you came to the temple to make a sacrifice, you would present it to the Lord. You, you get to, to keep part to take home with you. You give part to go to the priest, the high priest, for his meal. And then part of it goes to the altar where it would be consumed as an offering to the Lord, just burned up. And the priest in the temple, he might give the dogs that were kind of, uh, uh, you know, like scavenging around the temple, he might give the dogs some of his part, but he would never give food from, <coughs> from the altar. <coughs> he would never give food from the altar because that would be considered a desecration of what's holy. You never give something that's intended for a sacrifice, something that's supposed to be set apart, that's what holy means, something intended to be holy and feed it to dogs. <clears throat> and so Jesus says, look, everyone knows you don't throw the holy part of a sacrifice to the wild dogs. He's saying, look, there are some who will take the holy message of the gospel that you're sharing with them, and they'll just shred it to pieces. They don't want to have anything to do with it. At some point, don't waste on your truths on people that just hate God. Again and again and again. Like, don't, 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 don't do that. And to help Beller illustrate this, he gives a second illustration with pigs. Now, pigs back then also weren't domesticated. They would eat anything. If they were hungry enough, they would start attacking people and, like, attack people. You ever seen, like, uh, Silence of the Lamb, right? Like, like that whole scene? Like, you, you do not want to find yourself around a, a hungry herd of pigs. You don't throw, and for the same reason, you don't throw pearls at a herd of swine like that. Pearls were extremely valuable. Like, a family would have to liquidate all their assets just to get a single pearl. No one's going to throw that in a, pen of, in, in, in a pen of swine. He's saying, look, don't waste beautiful truths on people who won't appreciate them. Now, again, it's not that you shouldn't try. And it's not even that you shouldn't persist. But what he's trying to point out here is the nature of the person. The nature of the person. You see, somebody, the reason that, 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 that a pig uh, could never appreciate a valuable pearl and would just trample upon it and attack you is because of its nature. It's a beast. It's a wild hog. It needs an entirely new nature. It needs to be an entirely new creature in order for it to appreciate that. And so Jesus is making this point here, like, hey, look, like sometimes people won't get it. They won't want anything to have to do with the message that you bring them. You'll be sharing the truth in love, and they'll want to sh- shred, it, shred it to pieces. They'll want to shred you to pieces, trample on your message, and, and, and go out to attack you, go against your character, and try to bring it down. Jesus is saying, look, the reason that that happens is because the blind person can't see. The deaf person can't hear. Just like you were once that, and you were made new, 
You need God. You need the Holy Spirit to convict a person and to transform them. So practically, how do we apply verse 6? Practically, we make prayer a primary tool in our truth-telling. Make prayer a primary tool in truth-telling. Only the Holy Spirit can truly convict a heart. I love this quote from E.M. Bounds, who's like the godfather of old books on prayer. He says, uh, in his book on prayer, he says, we shouldn't try to talk to a person about God without also talking to God about that person. So simply put. See, people need more than just new information for their heads. They need regeneration for their hearts, which is something that only God can do, something only the Spirit of God can do. Secondly, that means we need to be winsome with what people can handle. Be winsome with what people can handle. Like, some people can't appreciate the pearl because of their nature, and so it needs to change. Their nature needs to change. There was one time where Jesus told this crowd that was gathered around him, he says, look, many of these things, I'm, uh, there's many things that I want to say to you more, but your minds can't even bear it yet. Your minds can't even handle it yet. And so he wasn't compromising by withholding that from them. He was being winsome. He was being winsome. He's like, look, I'm going to give you what's enough for maybe you to understand or like kind of handle. I'm going to trust the spirit to convince you, but I'm not going to give you too much all at once. We should also be patient with how God's timing is at work in a person's life. You can't force truth onto people who aren't ready for it. If you're getting annoyed that they don't understand, like you're forgetting that your own faith was a miracle. You have to be willing to go along with how God is working in someone's life. Look for evidence of grace. It doesn't mean, it means that you don't look for just the, the flaws and, and the only thing that you see are like the flaws in, in, in somebody and, and how, uh, how messed up and jacked up they are, but it means that you're also looking for evidences of grace. You're looking at somebody who's broken and imperfect, somebody who's a sinner yet saved and saying, man, I see I see evidence of God at work in your life. <coughs> and I'm praying for you. I want to come alongside you to see you grow more in who God is making you out to be. And lastly, <coughs> lastly, we need to be willing to receive truth ourselves. Be willing to receive the truth yourself. You'll never be able to speak the truth and love to others if you're not able to receive truth yourself. So maybe, maybe consider this afternoon. When someone lovingly confronts you in your sin, how do you respond? How do you respond? Do you bite them? Like not literally, but you know, like figuratively, like do you, do you, do you attack them? Do you go after them? Is it, is it safe? Right? Part of what, what it means to be, to be safe, to be confronted with sin, is not just like, are you 
uh, are you not aggressive, but also are you not like, oh my gosh, my world is over, right? Like sometimes like I find myself kind of going, leaning that way, like particularly like within our, our marriage, like when, when my wife lovingly calls me out on sin, like sometimes like I get so sad. I get so just like upset, beating myself up, and that is just as harmful and unsafe of a response as attacking somebody for calling you out. We want to grow in being safe to receive truth when it's spoken to love from others. I think the big point that Jesus wants his hearers, his disciples to walk away with from this verse is for them to see the grace and repentance in their own lives. You see, if you can't see repentance in your own life, and if you don't love the discipline of repentance, and if you don't see that as a gift of grace, the natural result is that you'll start to feel more self-righteous rather than Christ-righteous, which leads to you feeling more worthy and others as unworthy. And the next thing you know, you'll find yourself trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You've got a two-by-four lodged in your own. Do you see the grace of repentance in your own life? Are you so moved, wooed by the gospel? Knowing that God has pursued you, that God has loved you, not because you're so awesome, but because you're so not. That in spite of our rebellion, Jesus, the great pearl of heaven, came down to earth, took on human form didn't consider everything he had in heaven a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant to the point where he was trampled himself, betrayed, trampled, led to the slaughter where he would die in our place for our guilty sins. So that through the victory of his resurrection, we might find life and truth and beauty and goodness and mercy in him. See, we're not, we're not the judge over our fellow man. God is. God is. And what's wild, what's so wild is that our just judge is also the justifier of our faith. 
The just judge doesn't consider us justified because of how perfect our record is, but in spite of how imperfect and flawed our record is before a holy God, we're considered justified because Jesus, our justifier, has given us his righteousness and taken on our sin. Do you see the grace of repentance in your life? I want to encourage you. As you're thinking about this passage this week, to see yourself as a recipient of a grace that is so scandalous that it just overwhelms you and that you just can't wait. You can't wait to extend that grace to others around you. Share it with them so they may also come to know Jesus, come to know this Jesus, love this Jesus, and worship him as God. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.